nation of children, especially spiritual children, if you can imagine um, a a nation of children, I kind of thought about that, Uh, Jenny, you mentioned about praying for the election, how much as a nation of whiners and complainers and (laughs) how much, you know, uh, I I heard some older folks talking about the depression and I was like, man, we are so not ready for that. (laughs) Some people who just can't handle it. Um, but in, in, in thinking in terms of spiritual children, I was thinking back something about uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke recount what Jesus said when it came to the children. And Matthew 19:13 says this, Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went out from there. Mark says it this way. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Luke follows up on it with this. He says, People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, kind of the the, the three parallels there. Um, And I thought about that, especially that, you know, Receiving the kingdom like a little child and the gift, and what does that mean? Um, anyone who knows me knows I, I love to overthink things. You know, not quite to analysis paralysis, but I love to overthink them. I get in there. Um, when, I, when I went to work for the city of Cincinnati, I had to take this, you have to take this psych test. And I went down and I had to sit in the director of human relations office and you give you this test. And it's one of these things would you rather have your left toe cut off or your right finger? You know, which one do you want? You know, I'm like, so I'm sitting there, I'm going through this, just killing me. It's supposed to be like a 20-minute test in about an hour and 15 minutes. I'm like, okay, what, how am I supposed to do this? And she's like, just answer the questions. Just answer the questions. I'm like, I can't do this. This is What kind of question is this? And, you know, I'd engage her in conversation. We'd have a little debate and discussion. And Finally, I get done with the test. She puts it in the machine to run it through, and it crashed the machine. <laughs> okay, well, that's kind of funny. We both laughed about it, and... She fired it back up, ran it through again, it crashed it again. Okay. Couldn't get it to fire back up, so she had to call the company, so I left. Next day I came back, talked to her, and she says, well, we're not getting your test. I said, why not? She goes, well, I, I talked to the company. We ran your test again, it crashed the machine again. A tech helped set it up, crashed it again, so your machine, your test isn't going through. <laughs> So I don't know what that tells you about the over-analysis part. You can really mess the tests up. But So I never got that psych test from the city. But it, it, it kind of thing is, you know, it was a 20-minute test, and here I am spending an hour and a half on it. You know, we overthink things. And there's a degree to which when it comes to the spiritual side of, of, of things with the Bible and what we're supposed to do, we're, we're supposed to, bless you, desire the sincere milk of the word, but we're supposed to grow and enjoy the meat. Bless you. Wow, every sneeze night. Coughs? No, okay. Um, how do we do that to grow from desiring the sincere milk and getting to enjoy the meat? 
and, and really being able to, like Paul says, sink our teeth into it and really enjoy talking about the heavenly things, the kind of esoteric things that most, especially non-Christians, go, well, what are they talking about? Okay, I'm not talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but actual serious, legitimate theological questions. Well, part of my concern is I think there's a, there's a, a fallacy that we can fall into and what I would suggest is that it's something that permeates our culture, and it's this. It's, it's called the, the fallacy of the Pharisees. Okay? The Pharisees took what was originally Ten Commandments, the book of Leviticus, and created over 900 rules, and only like 12,000 different things that you had to do this way, that way, and you couldn't do this, you know, and the way you had to wear everything. And they created a form of legalism out of it. That's one way of doing it. But John chapter 3, um, Jesus talked with Nicodemus. And he says this, he says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Now, Jesus answered and said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Jesus was speaking to one of the most learned people, learned religious men of the time. And he's like, don't you get this? Don't you understand this concept? Nicodemus had a trouble with, what does it mean to be born again? What are you talking about? I, I don't get this. Um, and, and I think it comes back to this, you know, the, the, the fallacy of the Pharisees or something you want to call, it's kind of the vanity of reason. We outthink ourselves. We create this, oh, well, we have to add to the Bible. We have to add these other things to it. We start building. Um, and that's really where we get into it. it it's pervasive in our culture. Because I'll give you an example in science. What do we do? We catalog everything, right? We analyze it. We know this. We've become an information age, haven't we? Right? Information is it. If you've got the information, you're in charge. You, you, you've got control. Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 12. I'll read this. It says, Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people, he pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Do you know if you look on Amazon... There's over 170,000 different books relating to the Bible. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Think about that. Solomon saw what Amazon was going to come up with. <laughs> in one sense, you know? He's looking ahead that far in advance. He had that kind of insight. Now, one of the things I'd also suggest to you is this. What we've done is we've traded wisdom information. We know somebody you know, who's, who may be very brilliant, doesn't have any common sense. Well, we, We've traded that whole information piece and that, that's become our, our mantra. Contrast it somewhat with some of the Eastern beliefs which have actually taken, instead of taking information, they take the old Proverbs and deify that. All we've done is deify information. Now, 
I'm not saying this, that we shouldn't be testing theology. We shouldn't be, you know, testing the different winds of theology. But we need to focus on the fruit, which is what the Bible very specifically says, and also on the metric. And by that, I mean this. What are we measuring it by? There's one measurement right there. Word canon means metric. It means this is the tool you measure everything by. Now, the nation of the nation of children idea, especially spiritual children, really is Israel when they first came out of Egypt. Um, if you look at the beginning of the Bible, you have Genesis. You got the broad background where you start from world creation up through getting to a family, extended family, growing from there, Exodus. You've now got a nation, and you're coming out from there. Leviticus gives you these priestly rules, which man took and went, oh, we're going to have fun with these, to Numbers. Numbers isn't something we usually talk about much. It's kind of one of those books like, okay, yeah, Numbers is in there. Okay, some genealogies, I guess. Actually, in Hebrew, Numbers means the wilderness. That's kind of the 40 years. I mean, they spent the time. That's a lot of the 40 years. That's numbers. And it really is an interesting book in that it talks about what does it mean to be spiritual children and see how spiritual children grow. Um, It was a perfect leadership format. It was a theocracy. No democracy, no monarchy, no. It was God leading. And you know what? One of the beautiful things, Numbers 14, 4 shows, God's presence guarantees victory. The very way their camp was laid out, with the tabernacle at the center, said, here is the perfect format. This is your model. If you want to have a a nation, this is it. Those kids had a hard time getting it. Now, we had the convenience of 2020, you know, eyesight looking back, but what is it? Because they went from, in two years, going from Egypt to Kadesh Barnea, yeah, Kadesh Barnea, where they said, yes, let's go in. No, let's not. Okay. Nose went out. Okay. Oh, you guys all die in the wilderness. Right? Whole generation wiped out. There was an opportunity for real spiritual growth there, especially for that next generation. They were under 20. Growing up through. But what numbers really comes out to is a catalog of missed opportunities. A lot of the prophets later on they don't even recount back to the, 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 the monarchial age or when the monarchs are there. They go back to when Egypt, or excuse me, when, right after Egypt, when Israel was walking in the wilderness and said, here's where you started stumbling. And you stumbled from here in. And the reason I want to point this out is, is, is if you go to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, we're going to spend a few minutes here. Numbers chapter 21, 4 through 9. And let's, let's read it first. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. This is the fiery serpents. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. 
So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, I want to touch on a few key points in this. Go through it verse by verse here quickly. It says, verse 4, there was additional travel. It was on foot. And it wasn't just any travel. Instead of taking the king's highway up through Edom, guess what? You're now going to walk the sandy, rocky trail out through the desert, out around Edom. Here's your goal. You're going this way. Everybody, what happens when we get a detour? Driving down the road. Oh, I've got a detour. Can you imagine having your whole family and packs and everything else? Okay, we're going to take a detour and go this way. What? Evidently, time frame, it was part of the hottest part of the year. Wouldn't that be fun? Trekking through the desert with the families? Goats? I mean, the smell had to be phenomenal. That many million people and, and no water. But what happened? It says it right in there. The people became impatient. Hmm, isn't that an interesting phrase? The very first thing, what do kids do? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can you imagine a million people asking Moses, are we there yet? Are we there yet? What do you mean we have to go the long way? I'm hot. I'm tired. Verse 5 says something very pointed, though. It says this. The people spoke against God and Moses. Now, one thing is this. They just received water miraculously at Meribah. Okay? They just came off a nice victory. And guess what? The food that they're complaining about, this terrible food, it's manna. That's the stuff that they're saying, you know what? This miserable food, we can't, can't stand this stuff. God's very provision for them, the water he's just miraculously provided for them, and they're going, I don't want it. I don't like this. I'm hot. I'm tired. I want to go back to Egypt. These are the ones that were the kids. These were second generation, remember? They're the ones who are supposed to learn the lesson watching everybody else die. And we're not at the first part of the 20 years or 40 years in the world. We're at the back side of the 20 years or 40 years. Everybody under 20 is getting older. They should have learned the lesson by now. Attitude on the journey. The way was difficult, but they would get, it would get done. How often do external issues bring us down? Heat, time, little external issues, do they get to us? Do we allow them to get to us? What do they do to our attitude? Physically, they may wear us down. What do they do to what's inside? Do they change our heart? God's response is swift, isn't it? Fiery serpents. Are they natural serpents? Are they unnatural serpents? Did God put a plague on them? don't know. The term that's used there, it's only used a couple other places. Actually, it defines the seraphs. You know, think about that. That's what it means to have fiery. We don't know if it means that the fiery because of the pain when they bite, which you know, can't stand snakes in the first place, so it drive me nuts. But being a plague of snakes, be like, oh. I'm with Indiana Jones when he opened the pit and he sees those snakes. Why'd it have to be snakes? You know, I couldn't do that. It would just drive me nuts. I'd be staying up on the pole, going, okay, they're not climbing up after me. 
But whether they're natural snakes or unnatural snakes, the people knew immediately we sinned against God. And what I want to point to is actually it was a maturing process because before this, what they actually did was they complained to Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron, you guys are doing this. Moses and Aaron, you guys did this. The people actually realized, you know what? God, you did this. It was actually a maturing process. They started to realize that, you know, the tabernacle in the front, the Shekinah glory shining down, the smoke cloud during the day. This is actually God's doing. Oops. Nice big spiritual oops. Right? We made a mistake. We sinned. Out of habit, what do they do? Immediately, they go to Moses. Moses, intercede for us. You do it, Moses. Moses, go step in and talk to God for us. Time for God to teach him another lesson. See, Moses isn't an intercessor. That's a priest. Something God says, look, this isn't about a nation and having a priest that comes to me all the time. Yes, there's a priest, but I want to teach you that there's more to this. I've set up all this Leviticus, and I've set up all the rules on the priestly side, but that's a symbol because I want to have a personal relationship with you. And he teaches it this way. Verses 8 and 9 is a teaching lesson about God, about faith, and about the personal interest of God in our lives. See, look at look at back at what 8 and 9 say. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at Moses, it will live? No. When he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. It came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Isn't that amazing? God said, Moses, do this. I love that. Verse, verse 9 is almost a direct copy of verse 8. Moses went and did exactly that. And people stopped dying if they did one thing. What they have to do? Just look. See, the, the, the lessons that God's teaching there is this. Discipline and deliverance both come from God. The smallest amount of faith. All you had to do is look up at it. You didn't have to get up. You didn't have to come to a sacrifice, which is what the whole system they'd set up was. There's none of that. Your immediate response from God, there is no, oh, I got to slice it open, get the poison. No, all you had to do is look at it. Simple as that. And God responded, not to a nation who responded, but each person individually had to look into it themselves. If you didn't respond individually, you die. Individual personal responsibility, an individual personal relationship with God. He taught those, them those three lessons that little thing. And before moving on, I want, I want to mention something. To me, I, I love the straightforward, that verse 8 and verse 9. Moses, do this. The people stop dying. This is how you get... You know, and, and it's one of those things where it's like, I love the straightforward command. Boom, here it is. Here's, give, me a, give me just clear instructions and I'm happy. But you know what? God's got them throughout the Bible. Start with the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Oh, now we got to live with that? Oh. Well, now we're back to Meribah. We're just right after Meribah, aren't we? I'm going to get impatient with that. I have to do what? Oh. See, it goes back to our attitude. Ingratitude 
brought on a nest of vipers. God's big enough to deal with them. Even if they don't have the easiest path, it doesn't matter what path he's taking them on. God's with us for the journey. Period. Now, it may not have been their best idea of food. It may not have been their best idea of path. But you know what? That was God's plan. Um, there's a song mentions uh, Garth Brooks sings. I hate saying that, but it's called Unanswered Prayers. And the, the phrase in it that really I really love is some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. When we live long enough to realize that, Lord, I remember praying for this, and you didn't give it to me, and I was mad at you for a while, boy, am I thankful you didn't give that to me. God's greatest gifts, some of God's greatest gifts, are unanswered prayers. Now, the God heals the poisons of the sins in our lives. There's a cost to sin, just like each one of those snake bites. It doesn't say they were completely healed. Everything was hunky-dory. It said they lived. And it was said that very clearly. There's still a cost for sin. God helps us overcome individual sins that poison us. If we do not eventually keep turning to him, we must confess our sins. First John 1.89, if you look at him, it doesn't say we ask God for forgiveness. We don't ask God to forgive us our sins. It says we confess our sins. He forgives us. It's not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit. So we recognize what we did wrong. Now, moving out of this passage here, these six little verses, they're, they're easy to overlook. They're in numbers. I mean, who goes flipping to numbers when you want to read something, right? It's a nice story, but remember Nicodemus? He's this great teacher of Israel, as Jesus says. And he couldn't understand being born again, but this simple renewal or this process, John 3.11, Jesus starts in this way. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So, ever, let me it. so whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Make sure I read that exactly correctly. The next verse, of course, is John 3.16, which we all know, right? Now, it really comes down to this, which is what Jesus is going back to this Pharisee and teacher and says this. It really comes down to that spark of faith, even if it's in an ocean of doubt, because from that, God can bring forth a fire that is great enough to consume an altar on Mount Carmel. Elijah was no different than the rest of us. That's what it very specifically says. He had his own doubts. But it takes that look, and it takes a simple process. It's a simple act. And one thing to understand is this. We don't know when or how a seed or a spark is planted or starts. And, and I say this tonight 
to brothers and sisters is, is, is kind of a caution. That's God's purview. Our job is not to hold the spiritual children off. We're not to hold those children off. Whether it's man's rules, hoops, because we don't want to be the recipients of Jesus' indignation, do we? He said, don't hold the little children off. They're going to be spiritual children that we're going to deal with. Matthew 28 tells us this. He says, tell, go, tells us to go and make disciples. And looking at the world around us, and let me be honest here, sadly many churches, there's very little knowledge out there, let alone wisdom, to encourage that spiritual growth. A lot of what we're going to see as we witness is bear this in mind. As you're witnessing, we prayed about several witnessing opportunities tonight, and we should all be looking for those opportunities, but we may be dealing with newborns. We may be dealing with something that's equivalent to an abused child. Somebody who's coming out of a spiritual situation, we don't know what it is. And I think of the phrase where we need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves when we're addressing these children, whether it's the newborns who need a lot of attention, don't they? <laughs> we got a number of them around here. They need a lot of attention, detailed attention. And guess what? There's a lot of those newborns that became newborns and got left or abused or somebody took advantage of them. And spiritually, we need to be aware of that. And yes, there are going to be stubborn, rock-headed ones that we stumble across. And there are going to be obstacles in our path, just like the Israelites when they're walking on that path going, this is a rocky path. I want to be on the king's highway. I don't want to be out here. We're going to be on that rocky path, running across those people who cause us to stumble. But God is leading us in that way. So I encourage you, Remember what Matthew 18.6 says. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Where to plant seeds, provide nutrients whenever possible. Witness, encourage, lift up so we can grow disciples. Help heal the wounded. Too often we try to be the husbandman. And I think that's part of that vanity of reason. And we fall to the fallacy of the Pharisees because of our pride. And it's a subtle sin that we need to make sure doesn't come into our lives as we're dealing with newborns, those who we want to be born. There's a harvest out there, but we need to be careful how we go about it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word your encouragement, your insights, Lord. Lord, we thank you that we don't have the responsibility of growing souls. But Lord, help us to live up to the planting and the healing and the encouraging. Lord, help us to be faithful servants in carrying out your word every moment of every day. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.